Well, I don't know about you, but I certainly believe the Holy Spirit's been here this morning and still is. Thank you for that praise group for that wonderful opening. <coughs> Last week, uh, we read that the Jews discovered that Jesus had healed an invalid on a Sabbath day and caused him to work by commanding him to get up and carry his mat. Now they confront Jesus regarding his authority for violating the Sabbath. So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jews persecuted him. Jesus said to them, My father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. And for this reason, the Jews tried all the harder to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Jesus gave them this answer. I tell you the truth. The son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his father doing. Because whatever the father does, the son also does. For the father loves the son and shows him all that he does. Yes, to your amazement, he will show him even greater things than these. Jesus' enemies react quickly and violently. They persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him because he had done these things on the Sabbath. In response to their anger, Jesus declares his relationship to his Father. Jesus is not off on his own, defying tradition as a lone star faith healer. He has healed this man on the Sabbath because he is doing the work of his Father. Now Jesus doesn't argue the details of the Sabbath law. Rather, he simply says, my Father is working just like me. By saying God is my Father, rather than addressing God as our Father, or simply God, Jesus makes, sorry, John makes it quite clear that the Jews understood that Jesus was saying, I am equal with God. The core of the matter is Jesus' relationship to God, whom he calls my Father. And for this unorthodox wonder worker to dare call God my Father is the ultimate blasphemy. Jesus has made himself equal with God and for these rigid, angry Jews whose belief was in the one true God, this is a sin which deserves only death. And the Jews, just like the people today, were so shocked because even if Jesus matched the identity of what they assumed was going to be the Messiah, they did not view the Messiah as being divine. They believed that the Messiah would come from the line of David, be a man, a wonderful man, but in no way thought that somehow he would be God. And they instantly changed their accusation from Sabbath-breaking to blasphemy. And God does do his work even on the Sabbath. Even with their intense desire to control the Sabbath, Jewish theologians knew that all created things would cease to exist, that all birth and growth and life would come to an end if God did not continue his work even on this day. So in the work of mercy, 
this healing of, of the healing of this man, Jesus has done the work of his father. This fleshly man, Jesus, who stands before these angry Jews, has been sent by God. He has come in loving obedience to do the work of, of him who sent him. And the works of the Son and of the Father are the same, for the Son and the Father are one. That eternal, intimate relationship is the source of his authority and his mission. The initiative is God's, not man's. So Jesus is utterly dependent upon the Father. He can do nothing without him. He does only what he sees the Father doing. And it's because the Father loves the Son that he has revealed everything to him. And the Son will continue to do even greater works than these throughout his earthly ministry, which will include the raising of Lazarus from the dead. So quite plainly, Jesus says that he does nothing independently from God, but works with God and does what God does. Not only that, Jesus tells these Jews who are standing there ready to stone him that God affectionately loves the Son so much that he tells him everything that he is doing. So Jesus does what God, the creator of the universe, does. So when you see Jesus doing something, you see what God is doing. Forgiving, healing, fixing, condemning the sinful world. Enjoying culture, reaching out to sinners, speaking the truth about sin, weeping in pain. And when you see what God does, you see Jesus. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. Moreover, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. I tell you the truth. Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He has crossed over from death to life. I tell you the truth. The time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God And those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to judge because he is the Son of Man. Do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good will rise to live and those who have done evil will rise to be condemned. By myself I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear. And my judgment is just. For I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. Jesus also tells these Jews that greater works are coming. Not so that you will believe necessarily, but that you will be amazed and dumbfounded. If claiming to be God is not enough, he goes on to make some claims that only God or a crazy person would make. Jesus says he gives life to whom he wills. 
Jesus also says in verse 26, like the father who has life in himself, so the son has life in himself. The father has given his power of life to the son. The work of the father is revealed in the works of the son as he freely shares life with whoever whoever he chooses. And every devout Jew knew that God was the source of all life not only in the action of creation, but even in the raising of the dead. They accepted the accounts of life being given to the dead in the Old Testament. But for this Nazarene to claim that that gift of life was an offense to their inflexible belief. Yet specific proof that the life of God was in him was in front of them, in the one that had been healed. With that power came the authority of judgment. This too the Father has committed to the Son and in his coming. Those who reject the gift of life come under that judgment. These very Jews who refuse to hear and accept this one who stood before them are even now experiencing judgment. All through the gospel, there is a division of the house wherever Jesus goes. His words and deeds either bring people to acceptance or rejection, to life or death. There is no neutral ground. Since life and judgment have been given to the Son, he is to be honored as is the Father. And if the Son is dishonored, the Father will be dishonored. There is both life and judgment in the challenging invitation that Jesus issues to these very antagonists, that he faces. If they hear his word, his whole message, and through that word come to believe in the one who sent him, they have eternal life at this moment. But there is judgment for those who refuse to hear. They remain in death. And this invitation and challenge comes to each of us. It is addressed to me, and it is addressed to you. At his bidding, we can either take up our bed and walk or linger in death among the lame and the blind. In Jesus, the present moment of decision and the final hour of judgment are brought together. The word of life and death that he will speak at the end is heard now. And the response given in this moment of faith or rejection will be clearly known in the end. So all of us live in this time of decision and final revelation of all things. And the place and time for making that decision is now. They are invited to hear and believe and follow in their priestly robes or at their fishnets or at their carpenter carpenter benches. And here right now is where we all know either life or judgment. This man Jesus, who issues this invitation, calls himself the Son of Man. And in this context, he is the one spoken of in Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 to 14. And this mighty man of God, now clothed in flesh, confronts these men. This is a place of decision. That authority to call forth the dead to life or condemnation 
is not his own. It has been given to him freely by his Father. And since Jesus lives only to do the will of the Father, his judgments are righteous. There is only one bad works. There's only one evil choice. Only one unforgivable sin. The rejection of Jesus of Nazareth as King, Lord, life-giver, substitute, and God. What we think about Jesus is judged by Jesus. Whoever hears my words, who I am and believes him who sent me, has eternal life. Good works and good behavior can never minimize the need for belief. If I testify, testify about myself, my testimony is not valid. There is another who testifies in my favor, and I know that his testimony about me is valid. You have sent to John, and he has testified to the truth. Now, not that I accept human testimony, but I mention it, that you may be saved. John was a lamp that burned and gave light, and you chose for, for a time to enjoy his light. I have testimony weightier than that of John's, for the very work that the Father has given me to finish and which I am doing testifies that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself testified concerning me. You have never heard his voice, nor seen his form, nor does his word dwell in you, for you do not believe the one he sent. You diligently study the scriptures because you think that by them you possess eternal life. These are the scriptures that testify about me. Yet you refuse to come to me and have life. I do not accept praise from men, but I know you. I know that you do not have the love of God in your hearts. I have come in my Father's name and you do not accept me. But if someone else comes in his own name, you will accept him. How can you believe if you accept praise from one another, yet make no effort to obtain the praise that comes from the only God? But do not think I will accuse you before the Father. Your accuser is Moses, on whom your hopes are set. If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But since you do not believe what he wrote, how are you going to believe what I say? So the question is, can't anybody or anyone claim to be God? Jesus had no need to prove who he was or why he had come. If he had constantly pointed to himself, his own witness would have eventually become a lie. He had come to glorify his Father, not himself. He was a man of transparent integrity, surrounded by witnesses who eagerly validated his mission. His Father gave these witnesses their authority and was constantly placing his stamp of approval on Jesus and his work. Yet Jesus did bear witness to himself, but he knew that they would not accept it according to Mosaic law. So according to the law, he brought in three other witnesses. And at the outset of Jesus' ministry, there was one witness who prepared the way for his coming. 
For some, John the Baptist had been a passing fad or another interesting prophet. Yet the power of his influence lived on in faithfully pointing to the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John had been a burning and shining light, a witness to the truth. He was a lamp, but every lamp needs oil. He was meant only to point to the Savior. He started a movement, but it was all meant to point to Jesus. And the works which Jesus was doing could not be separated from who he was, nor could they be separated from the one who had sent him. They, too, were a witness. And while many were amazed and even made shallow commitments because of the signs and the wonders there were others who knew that they could only be the work of God. What they saw Jesus doing revealed the glory of the Father. The Jews had seen his works, and we here have all read about them. Many of us might say, well, I just can't believe in a miracle. I can't believe in anything that cannot be explained through the laws of nature. The question is, Do you believe in God? Whether or not miracles can occur begins with the belief of whether or not there is a God who created nature nature and natural law and can do that which is supernatural if he wills. So can God do this? If God does exist, then it's not a question of if he can, but did he? Now we examine the trustworthiness of the record. Do we believe that it happened as it's recorded in the Bible? How do we know? Logically, we can't say no, it's impossible if we don't know everything. It's not enough to state that there is no evidence for the miraculous since our experience and our knowledge is limited. It may very well be that miracles have occurred and we are simply not aware of them. The Jewish Pharisees knew their Bibles better than anyone else. They studied and studied and studied and studied. But Jesus hits them right in the heart, saying that Moses will be there to accuse you. The one who you think approves of your spirituality. Your spirituality means nothing if by it you are righteous versus through it you understand God more. Another question. Are we so involved in Bible study that we fail to see Jesus Christ in the Word? Because on every page, Scripture bears witness to him. What an awful tragedy that the very ones who searched the Scriptures, who prided themselves as being experts, thinking in all this that they had eternal life, and yet were not willing to come to the one of whom the scriptures spoke. They rejected him. Here he was standing before them, bold and clear, inviting them and challenging them, and they turned on him in anger, all the time believing that they were being faithful to the scriptures. So they did not hear the voice of God the Father, nor could they perceive his form. And in the end, the words that they studied did not abide in them. 
because they would not come to Jesus. They did not have the love of God in them. They had rejected the God of love. And in so doing, they rejected the one who came in love to bridge the gulf. They ended up honoring one another. They became spiritually blind. The great irony in all of this is that the very one that the Jewish leaders felt they knew and trusted, Moses, would end up being their accuser. For if they really understood and believed what Moses had written, they would have accepted Jesus, the one to whom he bore witness. But they misread and misinterpreted because they came to the scriptures with a hard and unbelieving heart. And they missed his message, and consequently, they missed life. They were condemned, having rejected the one whom Moses spoke. Throughout history, people have given a variety of answers to the question, who is Jesus of Nazareth? Some say Jesus was, <coughs> some say Jesus was a good man. Some say Jesus was a wise teacher. Some say Jesus was one of many prophets. Some say Jesus was kind. Some say Jesus was married. Some say Jesus was tolerant and affirming. Some say Jesus was a healer. Some say Jesus was a magician. Some say Jesus was a sinner, just like you and me. Even in John time, John's time, there was a debate as to who Jesus was. People attempted to remake Jesus into a person compatible with whatever their worldview was. And there really is no evidence to support that portrait of Jesus. In fact, people usually ignore much of what Jesus did, and perhaps more importantly, what he said. According to the average person in today's world, Jesus was a man that lived a long time ago and taught some good morals. And to borrow from Josh McDowell and his book, The New Evidence That Demands a Verdict, we only have two alternatives as to who Jesus was. So let's examine them. Jesus claims to be God. So either his claims were false or his claims were true. Now, if his claims were false, then we have two alternatives. He knew that his claims were false, or he did not know that his claims were false. But if he knew that his claims were false, then he made a deliberate misrepresentation and he was a liar. But if he was a liar, then he was also a hypocrite because he told others to be honest, whatever the cost, while he at the same time was teaching and living a colossal lie. More than that, he was a demon because he deliberately told others to trust him for eternal life and destiny. If he could not back up his claims and he knew they were false, then he was unspeakably evil. 
Lastly, he would also have been a fool because it was his claims to deity that led to his crucifixion. If Jesus was a liar, a con man, and therefore evil, foolish man, then how can we explain the fact that he left us with the most profound moral instructions and powerful moral example that anyone else has ever left? Could a deceiver, an imposter of monstrous proportions, teach us unselfish ethical truths and live such a morally perfect life as Jesus lived? That very notion is more than doubtful. Someone who lived as Jesus lived, taught as Jesus taught, and died as Jesus died, could not have been a liar. So let's look at the the other alternative, that he did not know that his claims were false. And if this were true, then he was sincerely deluded. And he was a lunatic, because for someone to think that they were God, especially in a culture that was fiercely monotheistic, and then to tell others that their eternal, eternal destiny depended on believing in him, must be the thoughts of a lunatic to the fullest sense. But the truth is that Jesus was not only sane, but the counsel he provided gives us the most concise and accurate formula for the peace of mind and heart. As psychiatrist T. Fisher puts it, if you were to take the sum total of all authoritative articles ever written by the most qualified of psychologists and psychiatrists on the subject of mental hygiene, if you were to combine them and refine them and get through the excessive technical language, if you were to take the whole of the meat and none of the parsley, and if you were to have these unadulterated bits of pure scientific knowledge concisely expressed, by the most capable of living poets, you would have an awkward and incomplete summation of the Sermon on the Mount. And it would suffer immeasurably through comparison. For 2,000 years, the Christian world has been holding in its hands the complete answer to humankind's restless and fruitless yearnings. Here in Jesus Christ rests the blueprint for successful human life with optimism, mental health, and competent. So no lunatic could be the source of such perceptive and effective psychological insight. So if Jesus of Nazareth is not a liar or a lunatic, then he must be Lord. And according to the historical Christian tradition, the Bible clearly teaches that Jesus is the second person of the Trinity, that he was and he is fully God and fully man, that he was born of a virgin, died on a cross as our substitutionary atonement for our sins, not just for our example, and he rose bodily from the dead. These are two very different Jesuses. And in order to make sure there was no mistaking exactly what Jesus did, and exactly what Jesus said and exactly what Jesus meant, God inspired four men to write his record. And John tells us that he wrote the gospel so that we may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing we may have eternal life in his name. That's a huge claim, one unique to Christianity. 
The Son of God is used exclusively for Jesus in the New Testament, a title of his very nature, not just his position as Messiah. The Sonship of Christ denotes his equality with the Father. To call Christ the Son of God is to assert that he is, in fact, truly divine, truly God. The monotheist, mono, monotheistic Jews living in a polytheistic world understood this perfectly. In John 10:31, when Jesus calls himself the Son of God, they pick up stones. The question will never be who some say that Jesus is, but who Jesus says that he is. So what do we do with this Jesus of Nazareth and his claims of identity and power and authority? Is Jesus God? Most people deal with the spiritual question by making an intellectual assent to the fact that he's just a great teacher, a good teacher, or even a great prophet. But his claims and actions are either true or they're false. Tim LaHaye writes, almost everyone who has heard of Jesus has developed an opinion about him. And that's to be expected, for he is not only the most famous person in the world history, but also the most controversial. And Philip Yancey concurs, it occurs to me that all the contorted theories about Jesus that have been spontaneously generated since the day of his death merely confirm the awesome risk that God took when he stretched himself out on the dissection table, a risk that he seemed to welcome. Examine me. Test me. You decide. So we have two alternatives. You can accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior, or you can reject him. C.S. Lewis says that Jesus' claims produce three things, hatred, terror, and adoration. If Jesus is God, he must not just be admired and respected, he must be worshipped. If Jesus is God, we mustn't follow his teachings because it's a good idea, but because he is God and we must obey him. If Jesus is God, the blood he shed for our sins is of infinite value. It's God's blood. If Jesus is God, then our Creator has entered this broken world. He has landed, conquered, and is now setting all things right. And we are destined for joy and justice. And his invitation is for all of us. Come to Jesus. Let's pray as Hannah gets ready for our final hymn. Our Heavenly Father, what a loving, merciful, and great God you are to send your only Son as a Lamb who takes away the sins of the world. What love he has for you to follow your will, to do your will, to give his life to give up his throne in heaven to come down here for us because you asked him to. Lord, we just uh, pray that we continue to focus on you daily in our lives, in all our 
trials and tribulations and joyful moments, Lord, that we continue to come to you, to come to Jesus, and to give you the praise for this wonderful life that you have given us in Jesus. And in Jesus' name, amen.